want to add my welcome to you. My name is Greg Dernberger. I'm the senior pastor and also one of the elders here at Emmaus Road Church. And uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or perhaps your electronic devices, or you can pay attention to the screen up here. We're going to look at John chapter 13. We've been making our way through this marvelous autobiography of Jesus since Christmas Sunday, so it's been, it's been a good ride. A few weeks ago, I uh, crossed paths with an old friend, and in our conversation about life and ministry, he reminded me by saying, so much of people's spiritual struggles come from a lack of the gospel functioning in their lives. Say that again. So so much of people's spiritual struggles come from a lack of the gospel functioning in their lives. My spiritual struggles, your spiritual struggles, they rise, they trouble us, as my friend suggested, because of a lack of the gospel functioning in our lives. Do you you have spiritual struggles? Would you agree that your spiritual struggles are a result of a lack of the gospel functioning in your life? What does that even mean? (laughs) In John chapter 13... Verses 1 through 17, Jesus makes a very powerful and clear connection between the truth of what he has done for us and the practical implication what he has done for us has on our conduct. In other words, Jesus is showing us how the gospel functions in a believer's life. Another way to say it is that what Jesus does as recorded in this text, John 13, 1 through 17, it has meaning. And that meaning is intended to inform and impact how we think, how we feel, how we act, if we are true and sincere believers in Jesus. So I want to invite you, we're going to look at this text, I want to invite you to follow along now As I read John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose 
from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Let's pray together. What a gift it is, Father in heaven, to have this communication of yourself, this communication of your will, this communication of your voice, this communication of your very presence. And we tremble that we have this record of what you have communicated. These are divinely inspired words. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Open our eyes so that we can see your glory. Open our ears to hear your glory. Open our hearts to receive and sense this glorious communication of who you are in and through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. 
Amen. Well, it was a welcome week at Bethel College in St. Paul, Minnesota in the fall of 1974. One of the uh, unique blessings, I guess, for a believer in Jesus in attending a Christian liberal arts college is freshman orientation week. Bethel, it was called Welcome Week. Um, It's a it's a wonderful time, along with meetings with faculty and advisors. There's, there's also games, and uh, there's chapel, and there's Bible studies, and there's small groups, and then there's games, and uh, it's, it's kind of like uh, an, an on overflow of going to Bible camp, and some of you, I'm sure, who have attended large secular universities might possibly find those activities too adolescent for the adult rigor of, that's necessary for survival in the wild world of mainstream academic freedom. But for some of us, it was a, it was a good time. And uh, on the last night of Welcome Week, before classes began, all 500, maybe 600 of us freshmen gathered for worship. And uh, we separated into small circles, and we proceeded to be led through a ceremony of foot washing. I had never experienced such a thing before. Uh, I still vividly remember the strange awkwardness of it. I, I, was, I was wearing my running shoes um, since it was late August. It, it was hot outside. We'd just come into this gathering from, uh, straight from an hour of uh, ultimate Frisbee, and I was sweaty. And um, the girl sitting in this small circle next to me, whom I'd never met before, uh, she, seemed, she seemed sweet and obviously non-sweaty. And um, so when it became clear what was being asked of us, um, what was about to happen? <laughs> I ran through my mind how, tr- how much trouble I would be in if I just got up and left. Um, but as the Welcome Week staff leader unpacked the specific directions, it became clear that having dirty, sweaty, stinking feet was actually kind of the point. Um, It was supposed to be disgusting. It was supposed to be uncomfortable. At least that's how I understood it. We were supposed to... We were supposed to actually remove one another's footwear and soiled socks and touch with our own hands the feet of strangers and wash them and, um, and this was kind of like the worst part, then put back on those damp, stinking socks and smelly shoes. And um, we did it, as I recall, because it was humbling that it was. 
more like humiliating. It's kind of like a Christian college version of freshman hazing. Uh, I I can easily imagine that college administration today getting swamped with threatening communication from angry and offended parents over this abusive act. But in August of 1974, this activity was understood as fulfillment of John chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus says, If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Now, not to be misunderstood, I, I have, since, since that first initiation, participated in, oh man, at least, at least two other foot washings that were much less challenging and much more meaningful. But, but in most evangelical traditions, including our evangelical tradition, foot washing is not considered on par with other grace-imparting sacraments such as baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's, that's mainly because we don't see examples of foot washing going on in the early church, nor do we have instruction specifically regarding foot washing in any of the apostolic teaching of the New Testament. It's just not there. So what then does Jesus mean when he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. What is the example that Jesus has given us in this act that took place around a dinner table, over a meal with friends, on the eve of his death? And what does this foot washing mean? And what are its implications for those of us who believe in Jesus today? Well, I want to draw your attention to three things that um, this foot washing exemplifies. And, and as we look at them along the way, I want to commend to you the, the implications, the opportunities that arise for us to live in the good of the gospel truth which this act exemplifies. So here's the first. First, Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet is, I mean, it's really an extraordinary exhibit of entrusting oneself and our circumstances to all that God is for us. This is an exhibit. It's an example of what it looks like when someone entrusts themselves to all that God is for them. In washing his disciples' feet, that's what Jesus is doing. He's setting before us an example of what it means to live by faith in who God is, live by faith in all that God promises to be for his people, all his people, at all times, including us, and especially when... His people are 
walking through the providence, the providence of God in dark and severe seasons. Look again at verses 1 through 5. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So this is the setting, right? Jesus' hour had come. And he knew his hour had come. He knew the hour of his death had come. And Jesus knew how his end, his death, would come. According to John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus said, I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So, not only did Jesus know that he would be killed, he knew by what means he would be killed. Namely, the most agonizing means of execution ever devised by men. He would be suspended between heaven and earth on a cross beam with nails holding him there. And Jesus also knew the agent by whom he would be sent into that horrific ordeal. According to John chapter 13 verse 11 it says... He knew, he knew who would betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. So just imagine the emotional conflict raging inside as he washes the dirty feet of the man who would sell him out. Imagine the the anxiety, the, just the weight of knowing that in less than 24 hours, he would be slowly tortured to death. And knowing that, he nevertheless rose from eating. I, mean, I just, how, how do you eat? <laughs> When I hear of, you know, these executions of murderers and whatnot, they, you know, they give them a choice. Hey, you can just, whatever, whatever the last meal you would want to eat. I, I, I can't even imagine eating. I just want to be sick. He stripped down and he tied a towel around his waist and he began scrubbing and wiping 24 feet 
of what is this an example that we might emulate? It is, first and foremost, an example of faith. Faith. This is what it looks like when someone is entrusting themselves to all that God is and has promised to be for his people. Look again at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Not only did Jesus know he was about to be sold out by a trusted colleague and then killed by crucifixion, he also knew, he also knew it was part of the plan that he and the Father had established together before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose us in Him, in Christ Jesus, in His sin-atoning death. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. This was planned in eternity past. And Jesus knew it. And He believed it. And He entrusted Himself to it. And knowing it, being fully and joyfully assured it would be so, he endured the cross and its unspeakable darkness and pain. Jesus knew his Father had given him authority and dominion over all things. Jesus knew that as, as the divine Word of God made flesh, he knew everything was happening precisely according to the purpose of his will. But it was as a man that he entrusted himself to all that God was and all that God had promised to be for him and for, to be for anyone and everyone who believes. Lived by faith in Psalm 16. It's a promise by which Jesus lived and endured his darkest hour. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I will not abandon. He will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so loved ones, in this world, we'll have trouble. We'll, we'll have dark, dark chapters. We will face death. The storyline our Heavenly Father has written for our lives and the lives of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose will inevitably lead through deep valleys shrouded in shadows of death. And in Jesus, we have one. We have a brother, we have a savior, we have a forerunner who has faced every temptation and trial known to humankind. And in Jesus, we have one who did so by faith. Faith in all that God the Father promised to be for him and promises to be for us, his people. According to Romans 8.28, we know 
Like Jesus knew that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his good purpose. Now, of course, this does not mean the absence of intense emotions such as fear. Look at John 12, 27. What does Jesus say? Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. So Jesus is no, he's not a robot or a Vulcan. And neither are we. But his faith was real. And according to Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, the only thing that really matters is when faith functions and works itself out through love. And so it did through Jesus. According to John 13, 1. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Loved ones, this is a powerful example of how faith, how entrusting oneself to all that God is, entrusting oneself to all that God has promised to be for his own people, works itself out practically, functionally, in producing love. In his darkest hour, Jesus trusted his Father. And that trust, that faith, worked itself out in love. Foot-washing love toward twelve men. One of whom, Jesus knew, was an unbeliever. A traitor. And eleven others whom he knew would abandon him in his darkest hour. And Jesus did it. As an example for us to follow. It begs a self-examining kind of a question, doesn't it? I mean, how, how well do I know, how well do I know my heavenly Father? How familiar am I with who He is and all that He has promised to be? For me in this book. Loved ones, what could be more, what could possibly be more useful to our souls than taking in all we can of this record and revelation of who God is and all He has promised to be for us? I commend to you take and read, take and meditate, take and contemplate. My, my friend, Mike Bullmore, who's the one I ran into a few weeks ago, he says, meditating on all that God is for us as revealed in Scripture is like taking Scripture as a lozenge and placing it under the tongue of your heart and sucking on it until its juices drip down and run over your soul. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Second, Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet 
is a physical and symbolic exhibit of the justification of God. The doctrine of justification by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is, is, it, it perhaps is the most precious of all gospel truths. No man, no woman, no young person, no child can be saved unless their sins are washed away in Christ's precious blood. Look again now, John 13, verses 8 through 10. This little interchange between Jesus and Peter. Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. And he said that because, culturally speaking, the practice of washing feet, it was reserved for the lowest, most menial servant. Peter, as usual, he's just saying out loud what everybody else was thinking. Jesus, you are too high and honored for such a thing. It's not a task fitting for you. Never. Stop, stop, stop. And Jesus answered him, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I don't wash you, if the Son of God does not wash you, you will never be justified before God. You will never be reconciled with God. You will never be accepted by God. Jesus alone must wash us. Well, then Peter says to him, well, that case then, Lord, not, not my feet only, but also my hands, my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, Peter, are clean. But not every one of you. So you see, nothing else, no one else can make us clean or acceptable to God. Therefore, Christ alone must wash us. And when Christ does wash us, we are completely clean. And when Christ has done it, it is completely done. The doctrine of justification teaches that by the power of God's grace, all who turn and entrust themselves to Christ Jesus and all that he has done, God will pronounce them, declare them righteous, even though they're not. He declares them righteous. We read this text earlier together. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 25. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is 
in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Do you you hear that? Sinners. Sinners. People, People who sin all the time. Sinners who fall short all the time of treasuring God and cherishing his wisdom and valuing him and loving his presence and his his goodness, loving him over and above everything else, they are declared clean. In God's eyes, even though they are sinful, committing countless sins, washed by Jesus, through faith in Jesus, they are reckoned by God, declared by God as pure, holy, without blemish in His sight, if they believe. If they believe. Believe what? Listen. If you entrust yourself to the truth that Jesus is God... God become flesh and that he lived as a man a perfect, perfect, flawless moral life and died a sin-atoning death in your place on the cross, rose again from death. If you entrust yourself to those truths and to Him as your substitute. He he did all that you couldn't do. Or should do. If you entrust yourselves to those truths and to Him personally as your Savior and your Lord. Though you are a sinner and are sinful. God will consider you. Reckon you. In Christ Jesus, completely clean. And loved ones, that is what Jesus is acting out. He's acting that out. He's he's dramatizing it in this washing of the disciples' feet. God's the maker of heaven and earth. God stooped low, humbled himself, took on the form and the role of the lowliest of servants. And in a way that his disciples would only fully be able to put together later after his death and resurrection, he washed our sins away. And then he put his clothes back on and resumed his place. It's a picture, an example of what God has done. In washing their feet, Jesus acted out through a living example the gospel truth of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And and believer, sinning believer, joined to Christ, cleansed by His blood, you are completely absolved and free from all spot of guilt before God. No stain remains. That's the gospel. Sinners are declared righteous by God in Christ. But, as 
far as we are free from the guilt and the condemnation of God, we are not free from the presence of remaining sin. Martin Luther, commenting on this text, said, The devil allows no Christian to reach heaven with clean feet all the way. Milton Vincent, uh, who wrote this wonderful little meditation, um, it's entitled The Gospel Primer. Some of you have read that, some of you have that. Um, He says, Because I am a justified one, when I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as he graciously maintains my justified status. When I sin, and we will sin, (laughs) and sin and sin until the day we cross over into eternity. When I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me and longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him so that he might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart toward me all along. Loved ones, we can't pass a day. We can't pass a minute in a day without some defilement. Our souls on this side of heaven are like stinky feet, never ceasing to produce some oil, yuck, and uh, toe jams, whatever. Uh, And so even those, especially those, who are declared clean, need their feet to be washed with fresh application of the blood of Jesus for daily pardon. So, how, how do followers of Jesus, how, how, do we, how do we follow his example in this? How, how do we do just as he has done? Well, we don't necessarily have feet washing ceremonies. I mean, we could. Um, I mean, there's potential symbolic value and could be meaningful, I suppose. But, but where we practice the spirit of what Jesus has exemplified is in confessing our sins to one another. Loved ones, this is what we do in our discipleship huddles at Emmaus Road Church when we take the time together to actually repent and believe. It's it's what we do when we ask each other those so-called x-ray questions. It's what we do when we help one another identify those root areas of unbelief that that are bearing some sinful fruit. This is what we do when we come alongside one another to identify the idols that have taken hold of one another's hearts. And, And we can do it. We can do this transparently, vulnerably, honestly, because... If you are trusting Christ Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for the fulfillment of every promise that God has made to you and you count him as your Lord and you've surrendered to his claim on your life, then, dear friends, listen, there's no need to be afraid of anybody. There's no need to prove yourself. Why? You're clean. There's no need to hide in your shame. You are in safe company. At least you should be. 
Because you're clean, you're washed, you're justified, you've been declared righteous, clothed with the righteousness of another, our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need another bath. But oh, how much we all need to daily and moment by moment continue to turn back again and again, to be honest about our sins, to repent and believe in Jesus together. That's what it means to wash one another's feet. One more thing. Jesus washing the disciples' feet is an example of um, servant leadership. When the maker of heaven and earth stooped low, when the one who owns everything, stooped low and took on the most meaning, menial task. In doing so, he showed us in the most extraordinary and explicit way how, how authority and servanthood come together. Washing the stuff out from between those filthy toes was an exhibit of voluntary humility and self-giving, self-disadvantaging service. You just don't see that today. At least not in our culture. It is counterintuitive. It is countercultural. But it is a profound expression of spiritual authority. Verses 13, 15 you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I've done to you. It, it, I keep going back to what Mike said to me. So many of our spiritual struggles come from a lack of of the gospel functioning in our lives. And right here, right here in this moment in the text, Jesus offers a poignant example of gospel truth informing and engendering gospel conduct. He becomes a humble servant. And it's servant leaders like Christ who bring others into gospel community together. Do you think there's any accident that, that all of this took place around a meal with friends? <laughs> You're familiar, I'm sure, with the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the wizard Gandalf, he's, he's this embodiment of wisdom and love and he's so powerful and yet he's, his power is vulnerable and in weakness and limitations and so forth. Um, and, and when Frodo says to Gandalf, you, you are so wise, powerful, will you not take the ring? Take it from me. And Gandalf responds, no! No! With that power, I should have a power too great and terrible. And over me, the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. His eyes flashed and his face was lit as by a fire within. Do not tempt me, for I do not wish to become like the dark Lord himself. Yet the way of the ring to my heart 
is by pity. Pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me. I dare not take it. Not even to keep it safe unused. Loved ones, embracing God's power involves embracing our own weakness and remaining in communion with Christ. And it's in this that the Apostle Paul exhorts us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. purpose of this gospel, as stated by John and as its writer and, and as revealed through these highlights and teachings of Jesus himself is, is that we might believe and that by believing we would have life in his name. Lord, the gospel is your power unto salvation, unto freedom, unto deliverance, to all who believe. We pray for this power to be made manifest today, not because of what we do, but because of what you do, what Christ has done, what the Spirit accomplishes and applies. And so bring salvation, bring illumination, bring regeneration, bring about new birth, new life. Bring about powerful manifestations of your glorious presence and power. Bring healing to our souls. Bring deliverance from strongholds. Untangle confused thoughts. Bring forgiveness. Bring freedom from shame. Bring healing to our physical bodies. Lord, show your glorious rule and reign and kingdom in all its manifestations. Restrain sin, strengthen our faith, all for your glory in Jesus' name.